This is a house of miracles in the literal sense of physical healings, in the literal sense of in this house represents deliverance, healings. In this very house represents salvation, the greatest miracle of all. If you're here today and you're unfamiliar with this atmosphere and you're surrounded by people that you think they all got it together, I promise you this is a house of miracles. God has liberated people in this room from drugs, from alcohol, from abuse, from depression, from marriages falling apart. This is a house of miracles. I'm thankful for the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to go to the word of the Lord in the book of Matthew chapter 16. Hallelujah. 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 I worship you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. It feels good to be in the house of the Lord with the family of God. It's been an emotional weekend to watch the marriage of James and Akilah and uh, see what God has done. You want to talk about miracles. Uh, marriage yesterday was just two miracles, making a vow in the sight of God. We are so thankful for God's miraculous, transforming power. He's awesome, awesome, awesome. Give honor to Pastor. Allow me to minister here today. I'm believing that God has a word for us today. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. I feel more inclined to teach. And so I'm not in any pressure to try to shift gears into high, thro high throttle, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, but if God does shift it that way, then awesome. But I do feel some teaching. Matthew chapter 16, the word of the Lord says in verse 13 that J Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus wanted to know what people thought about him. And they begin to say, well, Jesus, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elias. Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say you're one of those prophets. And then Jesus gets to the real point of what he wants to know is, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? I want to know what you personally believe about me. We cannot live our faith based upon grandma, grandpa, or the opinions of others, or mom or dad. We got to serve Jesus for ourselves. So Peter, he pipes up, usually is the first one to do so. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Savior, the Son, the incarnation of the living God. You are God manifest in the flesh. You are our Savior. Jesus replies to him, Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I'm sure a sigh of relief came over Peter like, I got it right. I got this one right. And he goes on, he says, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Not only does he say Simon Peter got a revelation from heaven, 
Jesus hands them a set of keys to the most valuable property there is, the kingdom of heaven. Pistol Pete's got to be feeling pretty good right about now. And then Jesus changes gears and he begins to talk to his disciples. And he says, don't tell anyone who I am. This is your revelation right now. And then from that moment forward, Jesus began to show the disciples how he needs to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. All the disciples hearing their king, their Messiah, say, I'm going to be killed. I'm sure this alarmed them all, but Peter's like, don't worry, guys, I got the keys. Just, just relax. Jesus, I rebuke you. Be it far from you, Lord. I'm not going to allow this to happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You savor not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. That's a pretty quick turnaround. One moment, you're blessed, you got revelation, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Next moment, he's calling him Satan incarnate. And you, you don't desire anything that be of God. You desire what be that is of man. That, that knocked the wind out of your sails real fast. That, that would bring you down to size real fast. And you read something like this, and you could ponder, and maybe the disciples did, but could this almost be an overreaction? How could Jesus switch so fast? To say, you have revelation from God. You're going to build this church. I gave you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You're full of the devil. It's pretty extreme opposites how fast that pendulum swings. I want to talk to us about here today this idea of reductio ad absurdum. You may be seated. This statement, reductio ad absurdum, is something I came across some years ago, and it is of interest to me. It is a method of proving the falsity of a premise by showing its logical consequence is absurd or contradictory. It's basically making an argument or a point using two different extremes to kind of Prove your point by using the most radical, extreme example possible. It is endearing to me because that's probably one of my favorite conversation pieces with people. Is when someone says something, I like to reply with an extreme to try to show the absurdity of their statement. But usually it makes me look pretty absurd in the statement I say. Like, whoa, whoa, that's that, that escalated quickly. You are... You are making too big of an issue out of that. I did it today just naturally without even thinking about it. I won't go into the nitty-gritty, but as music practice was going on today, and they were talking about the accumulation of spit that acquires on this pulpit. A particular individual says, it doesn't matter to me. That's my spit. And, and I immediately did what I'm just conditioned to do, and that is to reductio ad absurdum, just use just some ridiculous statement to get them to consider 
what they said in that in hopes they realize maybe what they said is absurd. But usually I draw an extreme where they just think I'm absurd. But it's fun in my own head. But I like to say I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Jesus uses many occasions in Scripture where he draws out an extreme point, uh, an opposite, a polarization, if you will. Some people don't like this form of argument. Some people don't like this point making. But I can go through a number of scriptures, and I do have a lot today that we will go through. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, he goes to a synagogue, and there's a man that has a withered hand. And they ask him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? The Pharisees are very upset with Jesus because Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath day. It is against the law to do any form of work on the Sabbath day. Not even picking up sticks. In fact, in the Old Testament, someone picked up sticks on the Sabbath day and they were stoned to death for it. So the Jews over time went to the nth degree to try to guard this. And they went to the point where you couldn't even, you know, hardly breathe on the Sabbath day without being found guilty. And Jesus began to heal people on this day of rest. One man that was lame, Jesus told him, take up your bed and walk. And the man was healed on the Sabbath day and he carried his mattress rejoicing. Who was not able to walk, now can walk. And he began to get chastised because he was walking around carrying a bed, a form of work. And all that people can get hung up on was the fact that he was carrying a bed, not that he was carrying his own weight, not that a miracle was performed. And so the Pharisees are very upset with Jesus because he is breaking rank with them. He is breaking tradition. And so now they are trying to set Jesus up. And they bring somebody with a disease, an uh, an impairment in his very presence on the Sabbath day. And they pose the question, "Is is it legal to heal on the Sabbath day? And Jesus answers a little reductio ad absurdum. He says, what man shall there be among you that has one sheep? And if that sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you lift that sheep up out of that pit? It's a rhetorical question. And then he just puts a little emphasis on it. And he says, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath. There might be some work involved, but it is lawful to do good, to do that which is right on the Sabbath day. And I'm one, and as he put the emphasis, he says, look, the life of a human is greater than the life of an animal. In today's context of the 21st century, that's a, con, uh, 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 a um, an uh, offensive statement for some people because they want to put rat on the same plane as a pig, on the same plane as a human, on the same plane as a fetus. But no, there is no life more valuable than that of human life. 
Whether that life be 80 years old, 30 years old, or 30 days old. Life begins at conception. And every life is fearfully and wonderfully made. And is precious in the sight of God. Whether that human being is healthy or they have a sickness in their body. We value all human life. We ought to clap our hands to that. People would argue, that's absurd. I don't agree with that. I disagree. But Jesus loves addressing the absurd with the absurd. Going on the polar opposite side of the argument to make his point time and time again. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 60 through 68, there are many disciples that day as Jesus is teaching. And his disciples closest to him turned to him and say, Jesus... This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? That, you're, you're teaching pretty intense. You're getting pretty serious here, Jesus. And you're going to offend some people. And you're going to lose some of your following. And Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it. And he said to them, does this offend you? And the reality is we don't want to admit it. But the teachings of Jesus can offend us. The teachings of Jesus can can bother us. They can agitate us. If you think of it, I was uh, uh, in Wisconsin just recently and I was listening to a preacher preach and and he was making a point about uh, needles and how much he hated needles and he had my attention because I'm I'm of the same persuasion. I cannot stand getting a shot. And I remember growing up and when I would have to get taken in to get a shot, they literally would have to hold me down to a chair and I would kick and scream, though I weighed about 30 pounds in a, as a middle schooler. I still knew how to wail and travail and scream and kick and bite and punch and do anything possible not to get that injection into my body. And I, I remember one time in particular, they, they got on a microphone and they called a special nurse Bertha in. And as they're holding me down, I feel the floor begin to shift. And to move as if a T-Rex was walking one foot at a time. And came in Nurse Bertha. And she sat on me. And it is a miracle I am even alive here today. But I did get that shot. And I don't like the pain of a shot and the lies that go out of people's mouths. Oh, it won't hurt. That's a lie. It hurts. I'm not saying it hurts more than a dislocated shoulder. I'm not saying it hurts more than a man cold. But it, it hurts nonetheless. That needle stings. And they give you that vaccine. They give you that shot because you either are sick or they want to help prevent some sort of sickness. And if you think of shots like truth and that needle stings. And if at some point today the preaching stings, that means you got the point. That means the tip of that needle, the tip of that doctrine penetrated through your mind and through your heart. And we like to pull away from pain, but God sometimes painfully has to get to areas in our life so he can do something revolutionary for you, something transformational in your soul. And so the disciples said, Jesus, these are hard sayings. And he says, does this hurt? Does this offend you? And in verse 66, many of the disciples begin to walk away and not walk with Jesus anymore. And Jesus turns to the 12. He says, will you also 
go away. And Pistol Pete pipes up again. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And this is what can help you be solidified and be constant in the faith. Is to realize no matter how the word pricks me, no matter the feeling I get in the presence of Jesus, where else is there to go? For he alone has the words of eternal life. Not that those words are not challenging at times. Not that those words are difficult at times. They will be difficult. They will cut. They will channel. Uh, uh, they will provoke us. They will challenge us. But ultimately, our resolve must be this. There is nowhere else to go. Because that is the word made flesh. And that word made flesh is the word forever settled in heaven. And that's the destination I want to be. And I want to be forever settled in heaven. And so when that word comes out of his mouth, let it be placed in my life. Jesus said in John eight forty five, because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Don't assume just because it's truth that you will believe it. There are truths that come our way that we will not believe because they do not fit our worldview. They do not fit our upbringing. They do not fit our cultural surrounding. And so Jesus says, look, there's times I'm going to speak truth to you and you may not even believe it. And we got to understand whatever he says, it is truth. Paul said it like this in Galatians 4, 16. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Do not let a truth telling preacher become your enemy. A truth telling preacher is the best friend you can have in this day and age that is full of a world movement of faiths out there that are just telling people what they want to hear so they can fill up a building so they can fill up their pocketbook. But I thank God to be a part of a church that is not interested in trying to build our pocketbook by comforting people's ears. The greatest comfort is the truth of the Holy Ghost. And that Holy Ghost message is going to give you more comfort on the next side of eternity than anything on this side of eternity. See, the intent of truth, someone say truth. The intention of truth is to confront in order to convert. Truth confronts with the purpose to convert. But a recipient with a damaged or defensive filter interprets truth to condemn. And that truth is not trying to condemn you. It is trying to convert you. It is trying to do something positive in your life. And our flesh that is defensive, our flesh that has hurt inside of it, that has a skewed view, will begin to justify and rationalize and argue with the truth being presented. But we must make certain that we don't justify, we just obey. We must obey the truth, knowing this. That is the word of Christ. That is the word of Jesus. Where else can I go? I can find another message. I can find another messenger. But at the end of the day, who else has the words of eternal life? And that's what I want to lay a hold of, is eternal life. 
In Acts 18, 26, there's a scene where Aquila and Priscilla meet a man, a believer that is preaching and speaking boldly in a house of worship. And the Bible says Aquila and Priscilla hear him. And they take Apollos to them privately on the side. And the Bible says they begin to expound unto him the way of God more perfectly. A man that knew an element of truth but did not have the fullness of truth. He knew some things about preparing the way for the gospel, but he did not have the full gospel. But thanks be to God that Aquila and Priscilla loved him enough to tell him truth. Didn't love him enough not to offend him. They loved him enough saying, we might offend him, but we're going to do it out of love because the greatest offense is to hold truth and withhold it from somebody that needs it. Never ever let the feelings or the concerns of somebody being offended prevent you from presenting the cure for the common soul, the cure that every man needs, which is the death, the burial, the resurrection, of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly love a soul, we will tell them. And thanks be to God that Apollos did not get offended. He was open to it. And it goes on the same theme in Acts chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, Apollos at Corinth. And Paul passes through the upper coast, comes to Ephesus, and he finds another set group of believers. And he asks them this question, which can be offensive today. Have you received the Holy Ghost Since you believe. I know you believe, but have you been filled with the Holy Ghost? And that would offend people saying, what do you mean? Do I have the spirit of God living inside of me? I'm a believer. I have his spirit. Paul said, no, there's a difference from your belief experience and your spirit baptism experience. Those are two different experiences. Receiving the Holy Ghost and believing in Jesus are two different moments. And their reply is interesting. They say, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And so it's important that we be people that bring truth to every single person. And knowing that there is a nervousness about us when you look at the Word of God and you take it literally, you believe it and you practice it, and you come to the realization after speaking truth to people that you begin to alienate yourself from some people because they think your stance is extreme. They think your persuasion is a little more intense or maybe even radical. Maybe, they, oh man, you, you, you take the Bible too seriously. Or, you know, you, you really don't have to do that today. God doesn't care about all of that. God just looks on the heart. Which that's a scary statement in of itself. Because the heart has more secrets than the outside does. You can put up a front, but the heart is more seriously judged by God. And so we ought to walk fearfully before the Lord. But this this idea, this reductio ad absurdum, you see these polarizing viewpoints all throughout Scripture, time and time again. It begins in the book of Genesis where a statement from God is challenged by that which is against God. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord commands Adam. He says, you can, you can eat any tree you want, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not supposed to eat any of it. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, that put fear of God in you a little bit. You touch that, you're going to die. And you know, sometimes as a parent, you use some extreme statements to try to put the fear of God in your child. Hey, don't, don't do that or you're going to... You're going to get zits on your face. I don't know. 
You just try to put, don't eat candy, otherwise your, your teeth are going to fall. Don't eat, well, there's some truth to that. But you think about the immediate moment, you're trying to put, instill some sort of fear in them that I ought not to do this. I need to think twice about doing it. And so it could seem like God's over-exaggerating. The day you eat this, you die. But they believed it. But another voice came into that garden. And the Bible says in verse 3 of Genesis 3, about that fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Eve is defending what was told her about that tree. And the serpent, the devil, says to her, you're not going to die. God's just exaggerating. You're not going to die. In fact, if you eat of that tree, in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. That, that statement God is saying, that word that he's declared, that's, he's, he's overreacting. He's just trying to scare you. You can eat that today and you won't die. She listened long enough where her, just like Pastor talked about this morning, telling him about the thought process, the thoughts in the minds begin to dictate the actions. She entertained that thought. She entertained that world word long enough. And then she believed it and she took a bite. And to her surprise, she did not drop dead. She was still breathing. She was still walking. She was still looking. In fact, she saw more than she did before. Gave it to her husband. He partook of that fruit. Same thing, he did not drop dead. He was alive, breathing, and he saw more than he did before. Now they know of good and evil. So did God lie? Was God being extreme? No. God knew more than they knew, and he understood more. Because how can you explain death to somebody that's never experienced pain at all? How can you experience the end of existence when all you know is existence itself? Time's not even entered. Sin's not even entered. None of that even registers. But God was right the entire time. Because the Bible says when Adam partook of that fruit, death entered into the world. There was the entrance of the spirit of death. There was the entrance of corruption and corrosion and progressive death. There was a defilement in the human body. There was a defilement in the human soul. And there was a separation between God and man. Seems absurd until you see how it plays out. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, I'm going to go through a number of these. I don't know if I'll go through all of them, but I have quite a number listed down. In verse 22, 23 of Samuel, the Lord, and it's Saul has disobeyed God. And he basically didn't do fully what God told him to do. God said, I want you to wipe out every single Amalekite. Destroy every one of them. Saul did not destroy every single one of them. He spared the best. And in defense, he justified saying, I saved the best for God. I, I'm giving God more than ever. I'm giving him plenty. I'm giving him abundance. I'm giving him riches. And the prophet replies to him, Samuel, he says, does God delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken to God than all the offerings you could try to give to God. And this interesting statement that the prophet utters in verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, followed by another intense statement, stubbornness is as iniquity and adultery. He talks about two attitudes, rebellion and stubbornness. That we can so easily, you don't 
so much wear rebellion and you don't wear stubbornness, though it can manifest in material from what is internal. Absolutely. When you begin to intentionally defy what has been declared, that is a manifestation of stubbornness. That is a manifestation of rebellion. But you easily could mask rebellion and hide rebellion, just like Saul was trying to do by giving elaborate gifts to God, who in the eyes of everyone else would see, man, what a giving man of God. What a sacrificial man of God. But all the giving was masked by rebellion and stubbornness. And if that wasn't enough, he tags it with witchcraft and idolatry. Preacher, you're being a little extreme. Come on, Samuel. Really? Rebellion? Witchcraft? Cutting off a chicken head and, and pouring out blood and channeling spirits? Rebellion? Stubbornness? Like bowing down before an idol? That seems a little extreme stance. That seems like an extreme statement from the Lord, from the man of God. But again, you see over time how it plays out. And now you have Saul. In the covert of the night at a witch's house, channeling a spirit, bidding a spirit to come to talk to the dead. That is witchcraft. That is not of God. That is contrary to anything and everything that is of the Lord. But it all started with rebellion and it started with the preacher boldly declaring under the inspiration of the Lord. Rebellion is as witchcraft. Stubbornness is just like adultery. And you can say, oh, you're going too far, God. I don't believe that. But eventually, all of it plays out and manifests itself. Reductio ad absurdum seems like an extreme argument. Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus does this multiple times, but I'll share a few. He says, you heard it in the Old Testament. Do not commit adultery. Do not physically have sexual relations with somebody before marriage or outside of your marriage. If you're here today, and you did not know that. I'm not here attacking you, condemning you. I'm simply letting you know what the word of the Lord declares and that Jesus loves you and he will forgive you because that's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he still warns everybody that to be physically in a relationship with someone outside of a marriage is a sin. And though that is commonly known, though it is commonly ignored in society, even in Christian society today, Jesus takes it a step further in verse 28. He says, I'm telling you not only the physical act, but the visual act. If you begin to lust after somebody, you are committing adultery with them in your heart. Again, it seems like that's, that's a pretty striking statement. That's a bold declaration, Jesus. I'm, I'm not physically going that far with that person. But Jesus says, yeah, you're going visually that far with her. And it's just as sinful as the act itself. That's, I don't know, man, that's pretty intense. Verse 21, Matthew 5 and verse 22. You heard it said by them in the, those old timers, those old fuddy-duddies, the Old Testament, do not kill. And if you kill, you're in danger of judgment. But I'm telling you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever says to someone, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, you could almost call this sermon verses we don't want to talk about at all. 
But it's right there in your Bible, old and new. And Jesus, see, people think New Testament is just like God letting that, lowering the bar so everybody can just get a pass in. No, he's holding us to a higher level of expectation, a degree of accountability. And because, look, I'm telling you, if you have hatred in your heart and you begin to speak like that to a brother, you are in danger of hell fire. John the Beloved, 1 John three fifteen. whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. That's, that's even more direct. He said, John says, look, I'll take it a step further because this is how Jesus taught. I'm letting you know you hate somebody, you are a murderer. Well, I didn't put a knife into their chest. I didn't slit their throat. I didn't, I didn't ram my car into them in per, uh, um, intentionally. I, I didn't kill them. But the word of the Lord says, look, there is a spirit. That is in a person that is the same spirit as the person that murders someone. There is a spirit that precedes the act. And it is one and the same. The spirit that hates somebody is the same spirit as the person that murders somebody. The person that commits the adulterous act, it's the same driven spirit by one with the visual act. It's the same spirit at operation. It's the same spirit in activity and this is why Jesus says look I know what I'm saying sounds extreme to you but I'm trying to help you not by being some radical crazy off the wall just throwing out some flippant statement I want you to know this is ultimately where it leads this is ultimately where it goes so I will make the ultimate example I will make the ultimate uh, uh, illustration for you to understand the severity of it all First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. That sounds pretty extreme. I mean, I, really? The, the love of money is the root of all evil? What that means is all sorts of evil grows out from the love of money. It's like a root system that comes out from that greed, that spirit of greed. I mean, it, it's to the, the point where someone can get so in love with money that the prophet says in Malachi 10, will a man rob God? The rhetorical question, obviously, no, we're not going to rob God. But he says, you have robbed God because you're holding on to your money more than you are holding on to God. And the love of money is the root of all evil. He's not saying money is evil. He's saying the love of it is evil. The world seems that or would say these scriptures are extreme or absurd. And perhaps I've read one that you felt that little Needlepoint tapped you in the arm. Well, again, that means you got the point. And that means God's trying to get your attention. You don't want to pull away from it. For the purpose of that is to help. If you haven't felt a point yet, let's keep reading. Deuteronomy 22.5. The woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. That seems pretty extreme. Especially living in the 21st century right now. Where transgenderism and cross-dressing is, is lifted up and celebrated and constantly put in the face of society. Day in and day out. 
and say anything other than their opinion and their declaration, it is hate speech. And you are attacked. And you are trying to, they'll try to incriminate you to some degree, to some point. But again, no matter how crazy or absurd something sounds from the scripture, it is something for us to consider the source. What's the source? God. And when God makes a declaration, whether it registers with you or not, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And when he says, when, when genders start playing with another gender's clothing, saying that you think you can cross that line and wear that that pertains only to a man, and a man wears that which only pertains to a woman, it says that is an abomination. That word is a, something God strongly despises. We could ask, well, again, we justify our flesh. Well, how, how, can, how can clothing do that? How can the external, how can apparel have consequences in the spiritual? If God's a spirit and, you know, I have a human spirit and soul, how, how, how does the material affect the spiritual? Clothing, namely. Look in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 1 P- Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. In like manner also. The women, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Where's that in society, huh? With shamefacedness, meaning don't draw attention to your face. Where's that in society? Sobriety, not with broided hair, gold, pearls, costly array. It's the very pursuit of society. Gold, gold, material, jewelry. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. You can say, that's extreme. You know, at first, you, the defense may well, that's just the Old Testament. God, you know, is just kind of, he's weird in the Old Testament, you know, and he's just kind of mean. And not, he's, he's so much nicer in the New Testament. But fast forward to the New Testament, and the apostles expound on it beyond just cross-genderism. He begins to talk about even the the adornment, the jewelry, all those things that we would be offended by. And again, if you're here today, not attacking a single person, perhaps you've never heard this verse in your life. But it's something that all of us need to look at and to actually consider it before just brushing it off by a fence or saying, get that needle away. Actually understand this is in the New Testament and God's trying to talk to his people out of love out of helping. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, why? Why would this matter to God? This seems like an extreme stance. This seems like an extreme church. This seems like some extreme statements. But see, here's the purpose of it in verse 4. God is trying to get to the hidden person. That's not man as a literal gender. It's from a person, humanity. God is trying to get to the hidden person that is namely your heart. Because inside of there, God can do something that's not, something that's not corruptible. It's the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And in the sight of God is great price. The value system of society is the external. The obsession in society is the material. It's always flaunting it and putting it out there and showing it. And revealing it and not even caring and trying to draw attention to self. But the preacher and the spirit of the Lord is saying, look, no, no, stop being just like everyone else in this world. There's something inside of you that is more valuable than what's on 
outside of you. And you're putting so much time, money, and effort on the outside. Why don't you give God the time and the emotional effort on the inside? Don't get hung up on the external like the rest of this world. God sees something inside of you that he's trying to tap into. But when we are lost in the external, we don't know how to practice shamefacedness. And we don't know how to practice all this other stuff that is all biblical. It's it's basically deflecting from permitting God to the deepest part of your insecurity that's inside of you. That's manifesting on the outside of you. And God says, I want to do something deep inside of your heart because I love you. And what's inside of you is more valuable because this world puts its value upon how you look cosmetically. This world puts its value how you look in the adornment of dress and jewelry. But God says, I don't I don't need your jewelry. I don't need your cosmetic. I need your heart. Just give me your heart. Just let your guard down for a moment. Be vulnerable before me. Be transparent before me. And let me talk with you. Let me love you. Let me care about you. Because when it all plays out, You'll see that whatever stance seems absurd from God, there's a value system behind it. There's a purpose behind it. But we usually pull away from the prick of that needle into our arm before we ever discover the benefit of what God's trying to do. It goes on to play out. We okay? I know it's just Bible study here today. First Corinthians 11, verses 5 through 16. Every woman that prays or prophesies with her Head uncovered dishonors her head. This is New Testament church. He says, that is even all one as if she were shaven. Say, what? Bald women. What are you you talking about? For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. Cut her hair. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, two different words, cut or shaved, let her be covered. That's pretty offensive. But you're saying... Okay, it's a shame to be shaven or shorn. That seems like a pretty intense statement. What are you doing, Paul? Don't you want the church to grow? Don't you want people to come and not get offended or bothered by a statement like that? But Paul says, no, I, I love you and I love God. And I don't have to defend God. I just got to speak what God said to speak. And so here's what he says in verse 13. Judging yourselves. He says, everyone in this room could do this. Judging yourself. Is it comely for a woman to pray unto God uncovered? Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. Her hair is given for her covering. He says the hair is a covering, not a veil that we put over her head. He says the hair is the covering. But if that covering be cut or shaven, there's a shame that comes with that. And it says in verse 16, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. I'll put a modern day translation up there for you to read verse 16. If anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this. Neither do God's other churches. So it's not confined by culture. It's by nature. He says nature teaches us naturally what a woman's hair is and naturally what a man's hair is. And he says, what don't, if the glory of a woman is long hair. And he says, if it would be a shame for a woman to shave her head, he says, 
don't let her shorn her head either. Shorn or shaven. Don't cut it and don't shave it. Because nature puts inside of all of us this reality, this truth. You say, well, that's extreme. Well, here's what I love about modern-day society. Every so-called absurd statement in Scripture plays out truthfully in society. Recently, if you know, and I don't, I don't follow the news, but like it flooded uh, social media, it flooded news. Uh, people sent me text images, memes of it. There was a, an occasion that happened a week, week ago, I believe, where there was a joke made about a bald woman. Anyone know what I'm talking about? That Jada Smith, Chris Rock's scene that played out where Chris Rock walked up and slapped, or uh, Will Smith walked up and slapped the comedian for making a joke about his bald wife. Here's what's interesting to me. If you, I'm not in, encouraging or endorsing that you follow Hollywood. I, I, I do not. But I used to. I mean, I, I worked for Blockbuster Video. I mean, I was, I was addicted to Blockbuster now. But I, I was all into movie and Hollywood and all that stuff. And I used to watch all the Academy Awards and Oscars, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't now. There's just a bunch of craziness going on. Anyways. But that joke that he made about that man's wife was like so less offensive than the other jokes that have come across that platform and that venue at the Oscars. Because I've watched it before. I've seen the most offensive vitriol come out of people's mouths and offend people and attack them. And nobody came up and slapped them. And when Hollywood basically promotes, like, you know, fluid gender, fluid society, there's no boundaries, no barriers, nothing matters. And they try to celebrate anything that's contradicting to Scripture. What was different that day? Nature. Nature was at play. Because Jada Smith has a condition, alopecia, and she was ashamed. And that joke got her because she was embarrassed of having an exposed head. And so what did that husband do? He got up because the wife was hurt because nature teaches it's a shame for a woman to be shaven. And he got up and walked in front of the world and he slapped that comedian. Now, I'm not saying to anybody, don't ever do any of that, okay? Because the Bible is against violence. But here's the point. Is the crazier this world gets and the darker this world gets, the more clear every scripture in the word is. It stands true today because God is the great creator and he put nature in order and he set the stage and all of society is doing everything they can to overthrow and overturn every moral stance that's found in the word of God. But the scripture declares, look, nature teaches us about men's hair, about women's hair, about men's apparel, about women's apparel. And ultimately what seems extreme, look at verse 10. If you put verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, let me teach you the, the power of this. It's more than just hair. It's about submission. And if you would heed to God's word, there is power on the head because of the angels. Anytime we see God's word and we don't try to justify ourselves, we just obey whatever the word says. There's power that's on your life. There's favor that's on your life. When you take heed to the word of the Lord, God's not trying to attack you. God's not trying to condemn 
condemn you. God's not trying to rub your nose in your mess. God's saying, look, I got a purpose for this declaration. I got a purpose for this decree. And I want to help you. If you're here today and, again, you've never seen any of these in your life. You're not in a church that's attacking you and judging you. You're in a church that's informing you that this is what's in, in your Bible that every preacher in every church should be preaching because it's the word of the Lord. And God says, no matter how difficult society gets, and no matter how much pressure it puts on you, no matter how much Hollywood and legislation comes against you, I have put this forever settled in heaven because it will benefit you. Let's lift our hands. I'm going to hurry. It's 1226. Can you lift your hands and lift your voice? Come on, lift your voice. In the name of Jesus, I pray you speak to your church, God. I pray you speak to your people, God. I pray in the name of Jesus, any spirit of fence that would try, Lord, to be planted by the adversary, I bind it in the name of Jesus. And I pray, let there be a liberty in this house. Let there be a freedom in this house. Let there be revelation in this house. Lord, I pray, take scales off of eyes. In the name of the Lord Jesus. These extreme stances that come in Scripture... That the world will call extreme, but really anything doing for the Lord is a reasonable service. Romans 14, 23, it says this, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's why God has to address things that are counterfaith. He says, because counterfaith leads to sin. And he's even just talking about food here, a food situation in Romans 14. Ultimately, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just takes a little to make a big issue. Seems extreme. But here, here's, here's how it strikes me. Why statements in Scripture really agitate our flesh. Because I'm reading Scriptures that ticked me off at one point. I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, they ticked me off. I was like, stupid. Jerk. Get mad at the preacher. Get mad at the pastor. Get mad at these printed pages. It's easy. We're We're human. It's a natural reaction, natural response. But here's why they seem extreme to you and I. Everything I've just read. It's because that's how far removed we are from holiness. And how distant we are from a holy nature of God. Because the closer you get to God, you realize that's really not that extreme at all. Like, oh, that makes sense. Wow, this is... This is for my good. This is helping me. This is helping my marriage. This is helping my children. This is, this is actually changing the way I've been thinking. And this is help, helping me to adjust things in my life. And wow, I'm finding some liberty, which some people would try to interpret as bondage. But I, I feel more free than I ever have before. And that's what happens when the more radical something seems to you, it's, it's just, it's showing you the distance between our nature and his nature. But if you begin to say, God, I want to bring this body under subjection. I want to crucify this flesh. I want to be crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, somehow, here's the opposites. I'm crucified, yet I live. It seems absurd, but somehow when I crucify this flesh and make it submit to God, all of a sudden I find Life. Just like Paul was saying, who can deliver me from this body of 
death that's attached for me. I thank God that through Jesus Christ our Lord, I found a life that if I can crucify, if I can die daily, I can find life daily. I'm telling you right now, the life that you long for is found in all of the ways of God. It's found in the full counsel of God. Don't just... Pick one or two elements of God in your life. Say, God, I want everything you have to be in my heart, in my life, so I can find true life. Let's clap our hands to the Lord. See, sin simply means to miss the mark. So if you miss it, you miss it. And that's why God, is he, it seems so radical, but if we're off just a little, we're off a lot. Because we miss the mark. Anything that is not a faith is a sin. Anything off from the bullseye is to miss it completely. And ultimately, as I'm going to try to turn this around here, is salvation sounds absurd. The plan of salvation sounds crazy, but it plays out biblically every time. Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. What an extreme, contradictory statement. And they replied to him, what are you talking about? Destroy this temple three days, you'll raise it up. It took us 46 years to build this temple. And you think you're going to rear it up in three days? But the Bible says Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. And when he rose from the dead after it was all said and done, the disciples remembered that statement, that crazy statement that Jesus made. And it caused them to believe the scripture. If you hear, this is why we must pray. Preach truth without fear of feelings. We must be careful. Wise as serpents, harmless as a dove, speak the truth in love. But if you declare truth, and even if someone disagrees with the truth, I believe down the road, truth will play out to be real to them. They'll say, wow, that, that was right. That was right. They may backslide from that statement and be away from the Lord for 10 years, 20 years. But before their last breath, there's going to be a moment they're going to say that preacher was right. That statement was right. And we're going to wish that we would have listened to it the first time we heard it. If there's something you heard here today, I beg of you, I beseech you, do not walk away in confusion. Do not walk away in anger. Do not walk away in frustration. Don't walk away in offense. Come to the altar. Come to the preacher. Come to somebody and let us show you the way of God. Help us to, we will help to expound the way of the Lord. I thank God for every level of truth that you have in your life. But there's greater. There's always greater. There's more for me. There's more for you. I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do. I'm moving forward. I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God and Christ Jesus. I want more truth. I want more of God. Mm. Salvation sounds crazy. How be it in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. That's why it sounds crazy, because we're not talking about the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the devil would have known that if he destroyed 
destroyed that temple and in three days he will lift it up and raise it up, he would not have done it. Because when the devil attacked that, he basically said, challenge accepted. I'll knock you out and see you see if you come up again. But he did come up in three days. As crazy as that statement sounded, let God be true and every man a liar. Whatever God declares, you could take it to the bank. Whatever God speaks, it is true. It is real. It is absolute. It will come to pass. It will come to pass. But because they did not understand his statement, they killed Jesus. And if they would have known the outcome, they would not have done it. And so we got to be careful. I'm hurrying to a close. Colossians 2, 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. That's what's governing our world right now is man's philosophy. The tradition of man, the rudiments of the world. That means like the, the, the school system of this world, the rudiments, basically the ABCs and one, two, threes, which that's what they're doing. The world is entering into preschool, into kindergarten, into first grade, and trying to teach our precious children the world's ABCs and one, two, threes. Trying to put confusion into your child and cause them to think that they need to change their gender at an age so young where they're confused and they're taken advantage of. I'm telling you right now, we can, we got to beware. And this is why we got to communicate what I'm communicating right now. Because this world is not slowing down on its doctrine and its teaching. It is day after day coming in like a flood, blitzing your children, blitzing the workplace. And it's to get you to a place that if you don't cooperate, they'll fire you. You'll lose your job if you're not compliant. We got to make sure that we do not become the spoil of their philosophy. Because in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You're complete in him. He's the head of all principality and power. And it goes on to say, if we're buried with him in baptism, right there, Jesus' name, baptism, you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead, the power of the Holy Ghost. And you being dead in your sins, there's the dead thing. It says he makes alive with him. He forgives you all trespasses. And God blots out every handwriting of ordinance that was written down, everything that you've done wrong that was contrary to you. And he nailed it to the cross and he spoiled the principalities and the powers. He made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. Let's stand together. I still got a bunch of more scriptures I want to read, but I'm just going to move through and come to a close. I feel the Holy Ghost here. I don't know what the conclusion of this is other than I do feel I was supposed to teach these simple things to you today to challenge your mind and your heart and your spirit. God's redemption is extreme. Job 14, 4 says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? And Jesus like, challenge accepted. I could do it. Though your sins be as scarlet, I can make them white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be white as wool. Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God can remove the transgressions from your life. As far as the east is from the west. That's an extreme And a lot of times extremes are used to disprove something, but you can use an extreme to prove a point and create a rhetorical question out of it or a rhetorical statement. And he says, as far as that east is from the west, he goes, challenge me, test me, prove me, bring your sin to me and let me have it and see if I won't take the most haunting thing in your mind that keeps you up at night and not shred it as far as the east is from the west so far out of 
sight that you can no longer find it because you've been buried with me in baptism. You've repented in this altar. You've been filled with the Holy Ghost. It's the operation of God. See, God's so extreme in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Job asked the question in 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. So you and I, we, might be made the righteousness of God. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. But it says if if you could have God in Christ, it says to what God was in Christ reconciling the world unto him. Because Adam and Eve, all the way back in the beginning, that absurd statement, don't eat that fruit, it'll kill you. Well, let me see if it really will. Well, I didn't die. Oh, but you're dying. And you're going to a place of death. And that sin entered into all of us, that nature to make wrong decisions and to live an unrighteous life, that which is not right. We miss the mark all the time. But Jesus did something so crazy. He who was rich became poor. The king became a servant. The Bible says that he, he made himself of no reputation. That literally means he, he emptied himself. And he, he did not hold on to his deity as something to cling to. He became a servant and became obedient to the death of the cross. So you can be the righteousness of God. And what an exchange that takes place for you and I in verse 3 of Psalm, uh, Isaiah 61. He'll give you beauty for ashes if you just, if you would make this exchange. He'll give you joy for mourning. He'll give you a garment of praise. That spirit of heaviness is on you. And he'll let you be a called a tree of righteousness. Because the day is coming. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. They're two polar opposites. But there's a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We're going to all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, that the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. When this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So church, brothers and sisters, let us be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I wonder if there's somebody here today that can lift their hands and say, God, I don't believe your promises are too crazy or too extreme. I don't believe any decree 
degree or doctrine is Lord beyond a reason. It's there for a reason. And it's my reasonable service because it's all going to play out in the end. Everybody that takes heed to the word of God, everybody that surrenders and submits themselves to the way of the Lord, the day's coming. Jesus is going to come back for a church and that church is going to be without spot or wrinkle. The gates of hell will not prevail. And in the name of Jesus, the sting of death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Come on, we serve a victor. We serve a God who is victorious. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I surrender to you. My ways are not your ways. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts, Lord, are higher than my thoughts. And in the name of Jesus, your word will not return void. Your word will perform that which it set out to do.